Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I am in conversation with one of my favorite performers, one of my favorite people to interview, and truthfully, just one of my favorite people alive, Alexandra Silber. This is the third time that I've had the absolute pleasure to interview Al. In the podcast feed, we will have links to both of the previous episodes in the show notes if you want to check those out. She is currently starring in the off-Broadway premiere of the play The Lucky Star. I don't want to get into a lot of the conversation because I want you to listen to it. But one thing that I can say is that there are very few people who are as open and honest and revealing uh, while having a conversation as Al. She is a master storyteller and just one of the brightest lights that I've ever had the opportunity to meet. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the incomparable Alexandra Silber. Hi, Matt. Hi, Al. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm in the middle of a thunderstorm. So if anything like goes wonky with connection, <laughs> that is why. So... Don't worry. I'm so happy to talk to you. I know. It's nice. Like twice in a month. This is like... Oh my God. I know. need to make this more regular. But For sure. this is uh, a long time overdue. I went back and looked. The first time that you and I did an interview together was in July of 2016. Oh my gosh. And then we did another one in July of 2017, and we have not done one in almost five years, which makes me very, very sad. So, but now extra happy that we are doing this one today. Indeed. And I just want to say, listeners, I think that our conversations, Matt, are among the favorite interviews of my career. Mine too. And you've probably done far more interviews on your end than I have done on my end, but um, they're always something special. And that that is because yeah. you have this you have this charisma about you that I always could tell from stage and then in these interviews. But when I finally got to meet you last month in person, it's like <laughs> bam, like hits you in the face. The the Al Silber charisma is real. Oh, it is real you. and it is palpable. Um and I think that's a that it's a really interesting thing as I kind of started to do, you know, a little bit of research and throw some notes together for this is like all of the crazy things that you've done in your career, like the the disparate areas that you've taken things like that has to come both from that charisma, but also like a little bit of chutzpah to like, OK, I'm <laughs> me and I, I'm doing all of these different things like has that always been part of who you were as, you know, trying to take on different challenges, even if they are things that might at least initially feel outside of your normal comfort zone? That's first of all, uh, this is why I love talking to you because you always frame questions in such an interesting, unique way. Um, I love this question. You know, I think so. I think on some level, I, you know, as we've discussed before, but for our new listeners, um, you know, I came from a, a nuclear family. My mom and dad were very solid with each other and really provided a lot of support for me. And I think when, when you have a, you know, and how, my gosh, how fortunate I was to have that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I felt really safe to fail, to, to try things and, and spectacularly fail and sort of mm-hmm. learn from that experience that, that's really the birthplace of valiance and courage. And I just want to see, um, and, you know, with this sort of like knowledge that failure isn't fatal, 
which I do think a lot, I do think I can see on a lot of people um, keeps them from from going for things. And and of course, on another level too. Um, again, I know you know this, but for anyone new, you know my my family also was a family that had illness in it. My dad was very sick and ultimately passed away when I was 18. And I think that facing adversity, an intense loss like that so early also puts into perspective a crucial difference that I don't think we talk about enough, which is like this distinction between enormous discomfort and danger. Um, you know, I think we confuse them a lot and, um, not that I would ever obviously say that overwhelming soul crushing grief is just discomfort. Grief is grief, but, um, it is not fatal. And I think the very fact that so early in my life, I walked through that valley and came out the other side, the lesson in my cells that I learned from that is. Um, I really never had to be bone crushingly afraid of simply trying new things. I'd already faced so much. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think that's, I think that's, I'm sorry, that was a pretty intense first answer, sorry. but that's how what's we new with us? Yeah, yeah that's, that's how, how we, we yeah. Well, And it's so interesting because we've talked in the past about how the loss of your father led you to make a huge decision. And that was to go pursue your, you know, collegiate education overseas. Um, and it feels like that kind of started the ball rolling, but, uh, you know, kind of looking at, especially the last, you know, five, six years or whatever, uh, of your career, it has been marked with a lot of shows that tie into your Jewish heritage. And, and, and I want to talk about obviously the lucky star, which is the show you're starring on off Broadway right now. But as I was thinking about this, you know, you've done Fiddler both in London and New York. You just did Indecent at the Minier Chocolate Factory. You're doing Lucky Star now. Um, you've obviously wrote the book after Anna Tevka, which is a follow-up novel to um, to Fiddler, which is an incredible read, and I highly recommend it. But I, is was that always the case that that part of yourself was important to you? Because I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like it wasn't until two years ago that you had a bat mitzvah. Was it yeah. part of your your work as an actress or a writer, especially with White Hot Grief Parade, I assume, that like kind of reopened that part of your your identity? Oh, another great question. Um, so, you know, the answer is no. I had a very secular upbringing and I do chronicle this a lot in White Hot Grief Parade, which is a memoir that sort of chronicles the, I guess, four months and and some uh, some roots that go out toward other periods of my life. But it really focuses on the the actual event of losing my dad. Um, and yeah, you know, I think I didn't have the greatest relationship. That's an understatement. I I had a poor relationship with my dad's family. Um, and, you know, I think, and also my mom who actually comes from a Latinx background and, um, and, you know, Catholic informed, um, was, was sort of estranged for her family from her family when we were, when I was growing up. And so I think interestingly, like what, 
we built together as a family was um, sort of separated from their cultural backgrounds and had its own sort of spirituality of the arts, I, I, I guess I would say. And what's interesting is that the Jewishness really started to call to me when my dad died. And it, it wasn't a call. It was like a tiny little whisper in my ear. The first event of which was that my, it was very important to my grandparents that my dad have a service in a temple. And we had to like find a temple and a rabbi to do this because we didn't attend services, nor did they. Um, but in the, in the sort of hunt for that, uh, a rabbi named Rabbi Daniel Syme came into my life. Who, important name, important name. Important you, yeah. name. There we go. Um, and uh, important name, still alive and well and changing lives in outside Detroit, Michigan. And um, he gave me this gift that I didn't even realize was a gift at the time, which was he, he basically insisted that I perform my father's eulogy. And I had no idea the spiritual catapulting that that would do for me, both in terms of my healing journey and in terms of actualizing my right to sort of frame my father's life for myself. And of course, there was a spiritual component of it um, because the gift came from a rabbi. And a couple months later, he invited me to his office. I think he just wanted to check in on, on me. Um, and what I'll say is like we had a conversation. I, I do, I, there's a chapter about it in White Hot Grief Grade, where the way I put it is that he, he sort of showed me, he put, turned the boat toward a certain direction. Um, and I put the wind in my sails about it, but he just sort of pointed, if you will. And I didn't realize if, but when I go back in time, I see it very clearly as this moment, but I didn't realize at the time that Rabbi Simon sort of done that. What then sort of happened was when I moved to the UK, um, you know, I had grown up in Detroit where, which is the second largest Jewish community in America oh, wow. outside no of New idea. York. Yeah. And it's um, so it, the Jewishness, not unlike New York, um, it's both faith-based, culture-based. It, it, it's woven into the general pattern of living up, up to and including Jewish holidays. Um, sometimes some schools, you know, even public schools took those holidays off because so many students wouldn't be there. You know, it was a very, very huge part of Detroit culture. Um, and I think what was interesting was when I moved to the UK, reform Judaism and Judaism just period is just not as conversant there. You know, it's a Christian country officially. And Jews are a, a large, but very much a minority. And the majority of them are modern Orthodox or Hasids. So there's not a lot of um, Reform Jews. And it, it, they, they very much sort of stay in insulated communities. And so what sort of happened was when I did Fiddler on the Roof in London, in a sort of twist um, to the Broadway experience, I was one of three Jews in the entire company. Oh, wow. And I didn't even really particularly consider myself to be an authority. I just knew it was in my heritage and knew it was my in my sort of cultural legacy. Um, 
But what I realized sort of ended up happening was people with no information whatsoever were turning to me with questions and I couldn't believe that I had answers. You know, I went, oh, well, yeah, this is what lighting the Shabbat candles means. And this is what, um, this is what this holiday is. And this is why everything has to be done before sunset. And I sort of knew the answers. And I, you know, when you sort of awaken to the fact that you know so much more than you realize you do. Um, And then inside that role, I realized it felt wonderful to be this, this positive, joyous Jewish authority in this small microcosmic group of people in this company. And so I, I went deeper into the research than I probably might have in order to be a dependable and enthusiastic resource for the people that knew less. And it, that really kicked off the, the interest. Um, and then by the time I, I got to New York, you know, it was interesting, you know, the, the casting breakdown was almost the opposite. Almost 100% of that company was Jewish. Um, and it, it deepened the experience for me. It made me feel closer to my father and his legacy and our shared legacy. And and I have to say, I never forgot Rabbi Syme. And you'll probably remember from Astra I never saw Rabbi Syme again. Um, but I... I, in so many ways, felt that he had saved me um, and really given me this extraordinary gift. And so after Anatevka was published first and White Hot Grief Parade was published second. And what I'll say is <laughs> Rabbi Stein was the only, I put this in quotes, character in both books because I created a fictional Rabbi Stein, a version of him that was this believer and teacher and great champion for young Perchik in the flashbacks about Perchik. And um, that in a way that I felt really honored the level of Jewish wisdom and love that Rabbi Sam had just offered me without even knowing me. Um, and as an amazing sort of story, apparently back in Detroit, someone said to Rabbi Sam, uh, you know, running into him at the temple in the hallway. Hey, have you heard of this? There's a character with your exact name in this book that I just read. Um, that's just a crazy coincidence. Um, it's called After Natevka by Alexandra Silber. And he went, wait a minute, I, I know her. And he looked the book up and he remembered my face. And cut to 17 years later, I'm doing a book event in Detroit, Michigan and signing books and down in the line oh, is man. Rabbi's sign. And I got to hug him and thank him. And we reconnected after 17 years. And, uh, you know, as if like immortalizing him in the book, it, it, that that would have been plenty. But to be able to really say to his face, this is the impact you've had on my life um, was, was such a gift. That's amazing. I I love that story. And it, it's so interesting how personal and professional and artistic all kind of weaves together to yes. kind of lead you to, to where you are. And like I said, a lot of the shows that you've done, not all of them, obviously, but even I mean, heck, you even did cabaret uh, before the pandemic. So I mean, it's not completely, <laughs> yeah. but so much of that, but it, it, you you mentioned this spirituality of the arts that your family raised you in, and um, it doesn't necessarily – it's not completely different from as we go to l- the, the Lucky Star, you know, this kind of 
overlap of family and the arts and Jewish yeah. heritage and history and examining the past that really has kind of been what a large part of your adult life has been. Lucky Star, much like Indecent, um, is based on true stories about real yeah. life Jewish people. And for folks who don't, this is a, a show that I don't think has had a New York production. I know it's had a couple other productions in Chicago yeah. and elsewhere. Um, and your company is bringing it to New York for the first time. It's such a fascinating story and one that reads as though it was created for the stage or for the screen because it's so I cinematic know. and historic, but it's a real uh, human true story. It, it give people a little bit of the, the background about what's going on in this show. And Sure. You know. um, so The Lucky Star is, a tr as you said, a true story. Um, which is in some ways half documentary epistolary drama and half um, theatricalized the healing of generational trauma. And interestingly, the play sort of told in act one and act two in precisely those slices. Um, there's uh, Richard Hollander, a, a real person, a journalist and uh, scholar was the son of Joseph Hollander, who was a survivor of Krakow during the, the Second World War. He managed to escape in time. He saw the writing on the wall. He wanted to get his family out of Krakow, but they uh, did not go with him when he left for America and were stuck there. And unfortunately, as so many and too many did, perished. Um, but what remained was an unbelievable treasure trove of correspondence between Joseph and the Hollander family from America to Krakow for several years, over 200 letters preserved between him and his family, um, which Richard Hollander didn't discover until his parents died in an automobile accident in 1986. So he sort of goes up, you know, his parents are gone. He goes to the house to clean it out and work through everything. And he finds this briefcase filled with correspondence. And he had never, he knew that this had happened to his father. He knew that his father had had this experience, but um, never had the opportunity to ask him to go to Poland with him. And I think one of the things that's so beautiful about this is um, in Richard's life with his father, even though they had this wonderful relationship, this made, this remained a huge mystery. And I think one of the things that ultimately comes true is this question of how does generational trauma pass through us and how do we heal it? And really, you know, there's a, there's a quote out there. I, I, Sadly, don't remember who said it, but it wasn't me. Um, generational trauma continues to be passed down until one generation makes the decision to feel and heal all of it. And in our play, it is uh, Craig Hollander, the son of Richard, the grandson of Joseph, who confronts not only his father, but all of these generations and says, we have to know these people, give them voice. It is possible to be whole, even with holes in the story, even with shadow. And um, one of the most beautiful things I think that happens is in the first act, 
these very real people whose voices have never been heard before, have never been spoken and uttered. Actors breathe very real life into their actual literal words. And in the second act, um, we behold the remaining generations working through it and feeling all of it. And ultimately it's incredibly life affirming and a, a very powerful story about who do our ancestors belong to and how do we move forward? Obviously the, the parallels between this show and your life are not <laughs> apples to apples, but they're, I don't know, yeah. or, oranges to clementines, <laughs> very similar, uh, in, very well uh, said. yeah. Um, <laughs> It, it, was there yeah. anything that as you were going through the aftermath of the loss of your father or even while writing White Hot Grief Parade, was there anything that you excavated from his story or his family that, you know, kind of surprised you like Richard does in first his book and then in this show? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think one of the most important things that sort of can happen, does happen, is very tempting to happen in grief is the mythologizing of the of the deceased you know that we create a, a myth uh, a god in in them and that's a very different behavior than holding on to the good memories and remembering the good times it, those are very different behaviors right and i think i was very tempted to to do that with my father who was a very heroic and beautiful person um, that is not made up, but of course, who had flaws and who made mistakes and who I'm sure behaved badly and, you know, did things that were human. And um, I think for me, my journey from the teenage girl that needed her father to be a very specific kind of hero. And as I grew up, I don't know how to say this, but like meeting him as an adult with him sort of preserved in amber, but me changing, me going, oh, now that I've grown up and discovered this, I understand this part of you. And now this part of you, and I see why you like this movie. And I understand why you were so quiet and, and closed off in this moment of your life. It wasn't this, it was this humanity I think what I've personally had the journey of is taking Michael Silber, the God, and really holding on to Michael Silber, the, the human being, the man. And I, I really do think that that is one of the journeys that Richard has in our play, and I, I hope in his life. <laughs> um, and But that was a very profound journey for me. Um, and I'll, I'll say... I'll say a, a you know a personal thing I, I I have talked about online, but not necessarily a lot in interviews with my voice. But um, you know I've spoken about it a lot. The last seven years, I've, I've battled with um, an autoimmune disease, ulcerative colitis, that was really up and down, and at times really dangerous. And I've had some really close calls with my own mortality and a, a, a feeling of frailty, really in the prime of my life, and. I and so luckily during the pandemic, um, you know, it was a huge decision. Um, but I made the decision to basically uh, have three major surgeries that ultimately cured me of ulcerative colitis. And I'm now actually on Tuesday on, on I should say on May 24th, 
um, I will be exactly one year from my final surgery, which is sort of the official moment that you get to declare that the procedures were a success. Um, that anniversary is really looming over me with, with great joy and light. But I'll say, Matt, like, I think one of the biggest things that I've experienced in my health journey, and it really has been a journey, um, is I felt closer to my father than I ever did in life because there's so much about his determination to survive and his battle that I finally understood in a cellular way. And there were so many times, for example, when I felt as a teenager that, oh, he's keeping things from me, or he's not telling me the whole story, or he won't let me go into the hospital room, or he won't let me see this part of his life or that part of his life. And I felt that it was personal. I thought it's not that he doesn't want to share it at all. It's that he doesn't want to share it with me. And of course, that's a very teenage thing to think, right? But what I realized in my journey is, oh my goodness, I don't want anyone to see me looking up to see rock bottom. I, I'm, I'm feeling so much shame and disgust and human frailty. Oh my gosh, it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with his own dignity. And I can now release myself and him from that thought that I've held my entire adult life. And what a, oh my God, what a gift to have that relationship be fluid, even in the present tense. I, I love the way you talk about having this relationship with your father as an adult. Obviously, he's been gone for, you know, roughly half your life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. It, it, it's so beautiful. But I, I want to key on something else. You mentioned you've got a very big anniversary coming up um, yeah. next week. You also have recently celebrated uh, another anniversary. You got married. Um, I did. Okay. So I ha <laughs> the, the one thing, and I've met your husband. He's an incredible performer, a great person. But here's the thing. His name is Alex Silver. I know. Your name is Alexandra <laughs> Silver. I feel like this is either like meant to be or just incredibly confusing, or I mean, I guess both, but like- Oh, it's both. It's that, both. You know, the, the thing that's crazy too is I'm named after- my father's favorite relative, his uncle, Alec. And, I know, beyond. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's either some like delightful cosmic joke. I mean, my like God, my dad, the ancestors just like winking at us from the beyond. Um, and also being like, could you please pay attention to this person who you might otherwise miss, you know? Um, and, and then on the other side of it, Matt, of course, like you have no idea how much we've confused and, and ticked off the post office, an insurance company, the electric company, like people are so confused, um, but it's a delight. And, <laughs> and um, whatever you do, don't agree to his pitch for hyphenation. He's, he's very into the hyphenation and uh, no, I will die on that hill. So what what would it be? Silver, We're just silver. Both, he wants silver, silver, which is absolutely off the table. Um, I, we're just, I know we're both just going to keep our names and and keep confusing the post office till the end of our days. Could you go with silver or silver? It's really funny that you say that because when when we eloped, right? And so people were like, "Oh my gosh, you're married!" You know, um, and a lot of people would send a card or something, and it would they would get very creative with Alec 
Zandra Silver with like little dashes and parentheses. And, um, and we kept those, those are very creative. And um, I know it's just bonkers, but the best thing of all is if it was a wink from the beyond, I, I found, well, we found each other, but I found a person that was um, willing to really stick around in good times and in bad and in sickness and in health. Um, Not only the pandemic, but a person who proposed to me the night before my first surgery and with the comments of like, I think this is what sickness and in health really means. And um, just, uh, I, I was so closed off in my heart for so long and in my body for so long um, with sickness and sadness and um, that a, a, this wonderful person uh, eased their way in and I, I have the gift of, of his presence and love in my life. And it just feels like an unbelievable gift. Yeah. For both of you, I, I feel very comfortable I speaking for him, even though I don't know them, but I'm sure he feels the exact <laughs> same way. Another, another gift that I know that is important to you is I know you do a ton of teaching. You've done a lot of yeah. teaching over the years and you're kind of taking that a step further in this coming year as your professional theater directorial debut has been announced. You are uh, <laughs> you are going down to the public theater of San Antonio where you're going to be uh, helming a production of Mary Lee We Roll Along, which I think you've done a production of before you've been in, right? Yes, yes. Um, first of all, this is the first time I'm talking about it. I love it. To okay. any, I mean, it's so exciting. I I'm love it. I'm so excited. But... Exciting, yeah, ex- probably excited and scared, to quote mm-hmm. Mr. Sondheim. Uh, but this kind of goes back to my first question. Like, this is not the easiest show to just, like, wade into your professional directorial debut with, which I guess yeah. is kind of part and parcel with the majority of your career. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, but you're so right. Um, yeah. It's this. First of all, I think I've wanted to... You're so right. The connection between teaching and directing, I, I do think has, um, they definitely have a lot of crossover. And for me, I'm just, I think I'm a a mentor and an educator that first of all, um, my biggest axiom, if you will, is look, I might know, I might've read Uta Hagen a few more times than you, right? And I, I might've had more professional experience on the boards, but so I might be an expert in the subject matter, but I am not an expert in you, the student who's here right now. And, and I'm also still a student of this art form and a student of life. And we're here to learn from each other. And I'm, I'm happy to be the person that's um, curating and making the calls, but this is a collaboration. And I think that does lend itself to direction. Um, I hope it does. And the way that this came to me is sort of beautiful. Speaking of how did we get to be here? Um, I, um, when I was 18, the same moment, the same sort of crucible moment of my life, um, before I went overseas, I was in the second class of the Guthrie theater program with the university of Minnesota. And I was, I was in a class, a very small class of 13 actors, I had followed my friend Santino Fontana there. I've um, heard of he him. was in the class. Yeah, yeah you've heard of him. Yeah. I, he was in the class ahead of me. 
and we were very good friends from summer camp. Um, and one of the classmates that I had is an incredible woman from Texas named Claudia DeVasco. And I ended up leaving the program, not because anything was wrong with the program, but because my father passed away. Um, I took the year off and ultimately decided I needed a fresh start and an adventure. But I stayed in touch with all of those people. And they, you know, I obviously shared a very important moment in my life with them. Um, and Claudia has recently been appointed the artistic director, the executive artistic director of the Public Theater of San Antonio, um, and really wanting to completely transform it to um, create an expansive and progressive artistic place in the city of San Antonio. And um, she basically reached out to me directly and said, hi, I want to work with you. I want you to come to my theater. And I'm here thinking, oh, what play am I going to get to do, you know, <laughs> perform in? And she's like, "My, we need to bring um, important stories here. And I would like you to direct Merrily We Roll Along. And my jaw hit the floor. Oh my God. So she had, she had the this idea. Wasn't even like, so this wasn't even like you saying like, hey, I've done this. I want to, I've done a show. No. I've done a performance. I want to direct it. Oh my God. That's amazing. No, it was, it was literally like you get this box that just shows up at your door and you're like, what's in here? You know, um, and how do you say no? I mean, how do you go? You don't. You don't. And as you said, chutzpah and what is there to be afraid of? If I spectacularly fail, then so be it. But I will make sure that everyone there is, their love tanks are full and that we're doing it with safety and respect and artistry. Um, but I feel confident and I'm excited. And I think, you know, this, as you said, yeah, I, it was one of the shows I did in high school at Interlochen Arts Academy. There were some unbelievable people in that company. Um, at, what, what a great Bar, show for, for high school I know, kids, too. I know. It's truly an amazing show. Adam Emberbar, who runs Theater J in Washington, D.C., he's their artistic director. He was Joe Josephson. Michael Arden and I were in the ensemble. And Ben Walker was Franklin Shepard. It was crazy. Um, and that's just a couple of the people that were in it. Um, it was an incredible endemic experience. And um, so, yeah, like a huge part of my youth and huge part of my falling in love with the theater and with musical theater and storytelling. So I really, um, I can't wait to, to bring people together and, and go backwards in time. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of, speaking of shows about Jewish characters that are based on real life, Michael Arden directing a production of Parade coming up. So yes. uh, just to kind of keep it with your uh, well, your, I believe your high school prom date, right? Is that is that uh, my correct? high school? How, yes, you remember my high school prom date, indeed. Yeah, very good. Well, this term you just mentioned it, and we'll wrap it up because you've been more than generous with your your time. But this it's always a joy. This term storyteller that you just kind of mentioned gets you know bandied about a lot in in the entertainment and theatrical industries. But speaking for me, very few people that I've ever come across are as talented in the the actual art of storytelling as you are whether that's on stage or in writing or in person so knowing all of that or on the subway on the, well whatever well, o'clock in the morning that's where we're going can we can yeah. we talk can we talk about charles oh my gosh i can't oh my gosh we must can we please? i'm so excited 
Um, Matt, I, this, this is the is greatest a, is, story. Like you get telling me this story on a subway platform while we're waiting for an overdue train was one of the highlights of my life. I mean, thank you. Um, wow. Okay. Cracks knuckles. Let's go. Okay. So, um, wow. This is the debut of this tale. Okay. So Matt, um, last year I had all these surgeries and the first surgery I had, um, was in November of 2020. And one of the uh, sort of things that you have to look out for after you have bowel surgery is you have to make sure that you eat like very easily digestible things. You don't get blocked. And it's very, very common in the first couple of weeks that you have troubles. And what you do is you go to the emergency room and they sort it out. But not everyone has to go to the emergency room in New York City at the height of COVID pre-vaccine. So I um, unfortunately had a little trouble in December of 2020. I went to the hospital, very uncomfortable. And it was also a Saturday night. So just picture it. It's Saturday night. It's New York City. It is the height of COVID pre-vaccine. I'm writhing in pain. I finally end up in a bed. Um, and I got a lot of great drugs pumped into me and we're all sort of separated. There's no social distancing, right? You know, despite all the trying, we're separated by shower curtains, which are completely see-through. So I, you know, we can all see each other. It's just for, you know, I guess an attempt at, at particles. And uh, the man next to me, the uh, bless, um, there's not, there's nothing else no other way to describe him. He, his, his face is sort of beat to a pulp and kind of like sliding down the side of his face. And he's just in terrible shape. And he's wearing a uniform from Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, from Chuck E. Cheese, where a kid can be a kid. Um, and we're sharing a nurse, um, this unbelievable emergency room nurse who I see running around, speaking a million languages, doing unbelievable things. Um, and she is tending to this man. And she's like, so, sir, you know, it looks like you uh, got into a bit of trouble tonight. You know, what happened? As she's sort of sewing his face back on. <laughs> and he goes, well, you know, ma'am, I work at uh, Chuck E. Cheese. And I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, one of the things that we have at Chuck E. Cheese, in addition to all the games and the pizza and the animatronic show, we have a bar for the parents where we serve beer and wine. And unfortunately, uh, Chuck E. Cheese statistically is one of the places in America where the police have to come to break up fights the most because the parents will drink and then they'll their, their kids will get in a tussle and the, there they are drunk fighting for the honor of their child. And unfortunately, it's employees like me that often have to get in the middle of it. I am sitting there thinking, I'm just, just like pause this woman's face. Of course, I can't see because she's like triple masked, but her eyes are like, where is this going? Right. And also like, what? Chuck E. Cheese is where the cops have to come the most to break up fights in a parking lot. Like what? Anyway, so he goes, so, you know, this evening. I'm, uh, you know, two parents and it's, it's, it's things are heated and it's COVID and it's this and it's that. And uh, I 
unfortunately get between these two parents and then they turn on me and they, uh, you know, I get into a tussle and here I am. And she's like, wow, that sounds terrible. And he goes, no, no, man, don't feel sorry for me. It's all in a day's work for Charles Entertainment Cheese. (laughs) And, okay, like, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, let's just go over a couple of things we need to unpack. First yeah, of all, yeah, so, okay, so apparently Chuck E. Cheese has a bar. Second of which is the leading cause of the cops being called because parents are drunk fighting for the honor of their child, which apparently is the employee's responsibility. <laughs> and wait, wait, wait. The E in Chuck E. Cheese stands for entertainment? I mean, what else? I mean, would it be Edward? I, I mean, of course it's I, entertainment. Charles Entertainment Cheese. I drop the mic. I defer to this man and God bless him. I hope he's doing well. I, well, I mean, hopefully he hasn't been back in the emergency room. But okay, so <laughs> you did you did fact check him though, right? Of course. Like this is a, this is a, a pretty easy Google. And I was like, wow. But the most important thing is uh, is the Charles Entertainment Cheese to me. Yeah. Yeah. Forget yeah. the fact that chain restaurants, Chuck E. Cheese is number one and getting the cops called. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the rats or the mouse's middle name. That is really the deal breaker here. Is it a rat or is it a mouse? That I, I actually know. did not look up. So that's, you know, listeners, please let us know. I, it is certainly more rat-like than like Mickey Mouse is, but I don't know where the line of demarcation is there. I know. And like, we should, we should talk about like the rat, mouse, squirrel, groundhog, like representation. Who does those other, well, like who does those other rodents PR? Because they're doing a great job. Don't you yeah. think? Yeah, certainly. I mean, they're all but basically the, the same animal, just with different fur. But yeah, and I just you know. So anyway, um, that is Charles Entertainment Cheese. I love end. it. It's, or the beginning. We don't know. It's the beginning, and let me tell you. After I, I Al told this story, after she did a <laughs> performance of the Lucky Star, like I think like the last, it was the last preview before opening night. She just That's seen right. her husband perform at Fifty Four Below. We were waiting for a train, fully hyped up on post show adrenaline. It was, yes. it was life changing. It was truly. Oh my god! Well, I'm I'm honored, and um, thank you for the opportunity to debut this story for the good people of the yeah. public. I will. I, I will remember this as a important por- point in my career for the rest of my life. So, okay. So, wrapping up, the Lucky yeah. Star. This is a show that um, has a a really um, kind of interesting cast with multiple generations, as we talked about with the, the different family dynamics in this show. Another former um, Fiddler on the Roof uh, star, different production. Um, yeah. which, uh, I've saw both and it was, uh, I wish maybe you could have, uh, thrown in some Yiddish into yours too, but that's another story for another day. But it kind of ties in with this, um, idea of teaching and mentoring. I see so much of you, you posting on social media about, especially some of the younger actors in this cast. And you yeah. were bragging about sky who also performed in the 54 below show that your husband did. Like how important is that to you as somebody who, has been a part of this industry for a long time and done a lot of different Uh, things and still in your prime, but like mm. seeing these young performers that you've gotten to work with, whether it's Fiddler or Lucky Star or whatever else, and, and kind of being there as a resource for them, much like you were 
you know, into that very non-Jewish production of Fiddler over in London? Well, I love this question. I mean, I feel like it's our ultimate duty, right? Like to to lift up and pave paths for the people coming up behind us as paths and lights, paths were paved and lights were lit for me. You know, I think about the people that I met at the beginning of my career, Ruthie Henshaw and Anthony Andrews and Simon Callow and Henry Goodman, Tyne Daly, you know, these people that taught me what it meant to be a person of the theater to, I remember, I mean, Tyne Daly gave me some of the most profound, simplest and most profound advice of my career and of my life. When I asked her what it took to be a leading lady, she said, it's really only two things. You have to be a leader and you have to be a lady. And in, in the full spirit of what both of those words mean. And, you know, I feel so many gifts were given to me. All I want to do, I feel like I've dedicated my life to not only serving the characters I'm playing and the stories I'm telling, but to make sure that everyone around me feels seen and uplifted and valued and cherished because what we do, even in incredibly joyous productions, but particularly when the material is very challenging, what we do is hard and costly on a spiritual, energetic, mental, physical level. And if I can, you know, light up one person's heart, uh, be a source of support. I, I feel like that's why I'm on earth. Yeah. That's and it's so true to how you anyone who either follows you on social media or who's had the honor to talk to you like that is so obviously at the core of who you are. Uh, so that comes through and and oh, that's why you. everybody loves you so much. And I will say, and I think I've told you this before, you mentioned Tyne Daly. That production that you two were in of Masterclass is one of my favorite shows when productions that I've ever seen. I loved that show. It was my first introduction oh. to that show, and it was such uh, an incredible thing. I was there with a group of students. So like it was even more wow. kind of resonant to um, to be there with a, a bunch of my students that, you know, to see this very different type of uh, oh, teacher-student relationship. So I loved that. And, and that was my first introduction to you. So I will always hold that special for many, many reasons. Thank you so much. It, you know, what a what a show to debut on Broadway in, and mm. the words we got to say and the gift that Terrence McNally, may he rest in peace, gave to all of us. Um, but yeah, it's it's a that play is about the nature of what it means and what it costs to be a storyteller and an artist. And I, it's it's not a job; it's a calling. And for those of us that know the calling, you know, may we may we answer the call in in good health and in uh, joy and in colleagueship because uh, at its, at its best, I I've never experienced anything on earth that feels better. That's amazing. Well, Al, you are absolutely one of my favorite people and humans. And Same. I am so ecstatic for everything that you have going on, both with lucky star and with merrily and everything else that I'm sure that will happen in between those things. And uh, next time I'm in town, I, I will have to look you up and maybe swap stories on a subway platform again and do something else with that too. it would be my absolute joy <laughs> thank you for always 
asking these deep questions and welcoming these these profound answers. Talking with you across my career is a, it's a real highlight. What you do is really special. Thank you. Well, well thank you. And uh, everyone, go over to 5090 59th and see the Lucky Star. We will have obviously all of the information on how you can get tickets in the show notes. But I'll have a great rest of your run. Uh, I will be in touch and uh, continued success. And congratulations on good health and uh, everything thank you. else. Thank you so much. Speak soon.